If you have a Bible, can you turn to the book of Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, in your bulletin there should be a, an insert with some scripture printed on it. And we're going to look uh, kind of first in Deuteronomy 6 and then kind of move on to some other things. But uh, we've been in a series, kind of semi-wrapped it up last week, where we're really talking about the competition that God faces uh, in the battle for our hearts. That in some sense it's uh, an either-or thing. It's on a, a teeter-totter. The, the bigger God is, the smaller other things are. And, and the smaller God is, or the bigger other things are, it, it kind of goes like this. And so we were talking about the size of God, and really the fear of God kind of sets that up, the passages in Scripture that have to do with the fear of the Lord. And I got a question at Redux the first week we did that. And the question was, uh, wow, fear God, I thought, I thought we were supposed to love God, or I thought God was love. And so how, how, does that, how does that play out? Fear God, love God seems kind of contradictory. And... Uh, and so instead of doing a, a Christmas message, you know, um, cutesy, whatever, don't shop too much at Target, um, whatever, I thought we'd go after that question. Um, how, do, how in the world do you reconcile fear of God and the love of God? Um, so we're going to just try and move that mountain this morning. I have no idea how it'll go, but it'll be fun. Um, and so we'll start in Deuteronomy. And, you know, we're going to maybe need some more house lights. I don't know if there's somebody up there, uh, just so people can read along. We've just got a lot of things to read this morning. So we'll kind of just dive right in. So Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. And it begins uh, this way. These are the commands. By the way, if you want, you can uh, square up the word fear as you see it. And circle the word love as you see it. And then there'll be another one that we can go back and you can you maybe on your own underline. But uh, we're going to kind of get all the concepts going here in this passage. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 1. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. So that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. Verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Don't forget them. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good, good things that you did not provide, wells that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant, 
then you eat and are uh, then when you eat and are satisfied be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery when God blesses you when God gives you abundance when God takes care of you when God makes it all work when he brings you peace and goodness uh, when it's overflowing don't sit back and forget where that came from rather fear the Lord your God fear the Lord your God serve him only and take your oaths in his name do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God. If you give the attention to somebody else that you owe to him, he will be jealous. God has jealous love for his people. And he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not test the Lord your God as you did at Massah. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you and you may go in and take over the good land that the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers, thrusting out all your enemies before you, as the Lord said. And in conclusion, it says this, In the future... Down the road, when all this has happened, when your sons ask you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you, tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible upon Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there, to bring us in and give us the land that he promised on oath to our forefathers. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness." Now, if you turn over a couple pages or on the back side of this sheet, we're going to pick up a, a very similar passage in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, it's kind of a restating almost of the same thing. And we hear this, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in His ways to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are aliens." For you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God 
and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is your praise. He is your God who, who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your forefathers who went down into Egypt were 70 in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. The first thing we got to understand about this whole complexity of Um, the first thing we've got to understand about this complexity is that we, the God is, is, is so, um, so much more of a mystery than we make him out to be. It says in Isaiah that his ways are higher than our ways. It's just by very nature of being a big being, being a great being, there's a complexity there. I think the, the more scholarly or the more powerful or the more uh, wise or the more shrewd or the more uh, aged a person gets, the, the more life going on, the more complex they are, right? And we have a tendency with God to, to flatten God, to simplify God, to make God one-dimensional, to put God in a box, to obscure the complexities and just kind of wash it over and, and simplify. And so when we do that, it's almost as, as if we kind of are saying that we're between love and love. God is love, and so it's between love and love. That's what God is. It's one-dimensional. It's love, love, and, and we're between that. And what, what does that bring about? The, the examples of that kind of that I would know would be would be um, a junior hire with his mom. Now, this is not true of all moms and all junior hires, so this is autobiographical. But um, junior high boys with their moms can just take mom as existing to meet their needs. Mom is just love. Not so much with dad, but mom is just love. And between love and love, you begin to what? to take advantage of that. It becomes um, not serious enough. It becomes easy. It becomes light. It becomes soft. And we kind of, we kind of take light of that. Does that make sense? We, we get this idea that it's just uh, easy, cute. And when we do that with God, it's kind of like you know, the baby Jesus God. Did you guys ever see uh, Ricky Bobby? You know, I like baby Jesus. I like Jesus with a Leonard Skinner t-shirt on. You know, I like Jesus. You know what I mean? It's like, it's this nice, cute baby Jesus kind of religion. And, and it's real easy to kind of just squish it down and say, oh, isn't it cute? But there's nothing serious about it. There's no gravity to it. Uh, you take advantage of it. When there's no pushback in anything, you get bullied. You get taken advantage of real easily, don't you? Whether it's mom or whether it's, it's the uh, 15-year-old kid that's just nice and there's no pushback, it, it's real easy to take advantage of that. Is it not? 
There's another extreme that we can go to. Maybe the Puritans were a little bit more here. But we can camp on the fear side of God, the awesomeness side of God, and and be so caught up in that that we don't balance that out with the love. And it's between the fear of God and the fear of God. And we kind of get this heavy sense of foreboding and and kind of freak out a little bit. And the prophets had a real hard time balancing the fear of God with the love of God. Sometimes it was, you know, like Elijah. He, you know, sees God kind of just be all big and scary and, and, and killing people and wiping out the false prophets. And, and he runs into the desert all exhausted and freaked out. And he's like, man, I'm the only one. This is all crazy. God, you should just take my life now. And God's like, no, it's all, it's all good. Okay, I'm doing this over here. It's pretty scary. But I've preserved for myself a whole group of people over here that, that have never bowed their knee to another God, that are pure, that, that are mine. I'm doing both of these things at the same time. And, and Elijah's is just hard. It's complex. Um, Jonah, just, he wanted to go preach the judgment of God to the Ninevites. But I had a real hard time accepting that the love of God was going to come along and forgive and accept and restore the Ninevites. You remember that story? I mean, Jonah was cool being here, but he couldn't deal with the complexity of God and, and embrace the fact that a loving God also wanted to come along and, and love on these people and restore them, not just judge them. In Jesus' uh, time, he's walking with his disciples and they come through a village and the village is just giving no regard to Jesus. And his disciples are like, you know, should we call down, like, should we call in the airstrike? Should we just wipe them off? Should we try and call down judgment on them, Jesus? And Jesus is like, no, no. Um, that's one side of it. But, hey, there's another side of it. It's complex. And so the reality that we get first from these passages that show us overwhelmingly this this call of the fear of God and then also this command to love God is that we end up with with a complexity of fear and love this duality this tension that we live between and God is is kind of got both of these things wrapped up in him when we were in uh I was in Florence a couple weeks ago and really interesting thing when you're watching the the David um Michelangelo's famous statue in Florence and and where you stand you get a different perspective of David it's it's really fascinating and now what Michelangelo was doing is he was bringing back uh, humanism Greek humanism for a long time everything had been really otherworldly focused and and godly focused and um, not not that it was godly but focused kind of that way vertical and and what the Renaissance was doing was they were bringing back Greek art and, and some of Greek thinking and culture and, and a real celebration of, of man, of human, and, and kind of magnifying that. And so Michelangelo was, was in love with kind of the Greek sculpture and, and all of that art. And as he did the David, he brought a lot of these themes into it. And one of the things that, that came up in Greek culture, Greek dualism, uh, would be reflected in kind of uh, art as well as just culture was that you had a split between the left and the right. The, the right side was, according to Aristotle, the side of light, and the left side was the side of darkness. And 
you began to see in art that left was the bad side. The, the word, the Latin words um, where we get the word sinister actually means to the left. So the word sinister means to the left. Um, Eve, uh, if you're a feminist, you're going to love this, but Eve in, in art was often portrayed on the left side um, for that reason, right? Um, so you have this kind of duality here. In Rome, early Roman culture, which borrowed a lot from the Greeks, they would actually have footmen um, in, in wealthy homes that would watch people enter the house to make sure they didn't enter with their left foot, which was considered a bad omen. If you used to be a lefty, uh, it used to be seen as a real negative thing, that, that there was something wrong with you um, if you were left-handed that way. And so you kind of see this dualism. I, um, I, when we were looking at the David, I was going to take pictures of this because I was like, ah, oh, I kind of like this. I'm going to take pictures of it. Um, but Caitlin wouldn't let me use your camera because um, you're not supposed to take pictures, but I, I didn't care. I was going to take pictures anyway. But Caitlin wouldn't let me use your camera. Um, so this is the best I could do off the internet. So here you go. Uh, inferior to what I would have taken. Um, but you can know that Caitlin is, is uh, integrous at least. Um, so this is which side? It's the right side. Um, does it look peaceful? It does, doesn't it? I mean, if you could get the right angle, I mean, it really looks just serene and calm. Um, so here's two shots of the left side. Uh, again, I would have done better. Um, but if you get to the left side and you look at it, um, the way he did the lines coming off the nose and the line coming off the eye is slightly different than, than the right side. And when you, when you really get back and look at the left side, it's almost a menacing, sinister side. Sinister to the left. Um, so it's a, it's a really interesting thing that kind of comes up. And so, you know, a kind of fun deal. Um, I've forgotten now why I went down this rap trail, but... Uh, We've got to see first, I think, in these passages in Deuteronomy, that there's a tension at play. There's a duality at play. There's a, a, a good side, a bad side, a, a, a deepness that's going on here with who God is. Um, that when we really look at things rightly, when we're really going to portray things, um, we can't make it one-dimensional. That there really are two things that kind of come in. So the word I would give you for this, if we really understand the tension between fear and love, uh, the word I would give is that we're going to take God serious. We're going to take God serious um, that we're in some sense going to respect God. A complex God, a serious God, commands respect. Complex God, a serious God, commands respect. Now that word I want to pick up on, because I think it's the next thing we really have to pick up. If, if we were to go through and you were to underline it in this passage, look at all the times the word command or a variant to that comes up in verse 1, commands. Then commands again in verse 2, verse 3, obey, verse 6. These commands, 
Verse 13, it talks about following God only. Verse 17, be sure to keep the commands of the Lord. Verse 18, do what is right. And 20, verse 20, says someday when your kids ask you what is the meaning of these stipulations, decrees, and laws that God has commanded you, what are they talking about? God lays out these commands, these stipulations. Someday your kids are going to look at these and say, what are these? How do they get there? Why are they there? What was the command? What was the command? I mean, we could keep going in verse 24. The Lord commanded you to obey. Verse 25, if you are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. There's, there's this, I mean, this passage is just laden with this word command and that we're supposed to obey. What is the command? Let me, let me uh, take you further. On the back of this, Matthew 22, verse, 20, uh, verse 34. Through, uh, let me just set it up, actually, before we get to it. In Matthew 22, it's a fascinating passage because you see really a debate running. The beginning of um, the middle, actually, of, of chapter 22 of Matthew, you see people trying to trip Jesus up because there is a hostile Roman rule going on in the land, which in some sense is very different than the, the kind of culture of Judaism, which says God is really the only ruler. And so you have this tension. And so they're trying to trip Jesus up, and they say, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And if Jesus says no, he's now guilty of insurrection. If he says yes, then he's not a good Jew. You see the tension there? So Jesus is being brought into debate with the sole purpose of trying to trip him up uh, of, of violating something that would, would, would make him less authoritative, that would undercut his credibility. Does that make sense? And he answers this by saying, you guys don't understand what's going on. Um, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to God what's God's. Then he gets asked another question about um, whose wife will this woman be in heaven because she was married to multiple men. And Jesus says, you don't even understand theology correctly. And he splits it down the middle again. And then we get to this passage. And so you've got this sense of Jesus trying to be put on the horns of a dilemma and he's asked by this teacher, a Pharisee, an expert in the law, okay, the, the defense attorney, the, the, I don't know, the Jewish Columbo. Give me a better, um, the, I don't know, the defense attorney, the creepy, uh, anyways. He's trying to get Jesus, he says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? With this one, Jesus doesn't, he doesn't really, um, the, here, I'll just read it. So it's on the back of your sheet of paper. Jesus replies this way. In answer to the question, which is the greatest commandment in the law? It's this, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A little bit of where he, where he kind of splits it down the middle and, and plays his kind of um, game with them is by, by then bringing this up and says, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Remember what we read in Deuteronomy? Lord your God, 
defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing, and you also are to love the foreigners. You guys get that? So Jesus brings in the first, and then he also brings in the second. And then he says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. What I want you to focus on, though, is we talk about love a lot. Ah, love God, or God is love, or love kind of comes out of nowhere. It's just, it just emerges, love, religion, love, uh, Christianity, love. Jesus couches his answer in response to the question, which is the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God, and then he restates it. This is the greatest commandment. So there's a real interesting thing going on here. We've got God is complex. God is serious. We're supposed to respect God. So here's how this goes. It starts with fear. It goes to obey. And it ends with love. You guys see that? We fear God, therefore obey God by loving God. Do you guys see that? There's there's a need for this to be here first before this thing gets going. When I was at Clemson... uh, college campus it was right when I went there it was ranked the the top party school in the country only only 60 percent of the reason I went football was the other 40 percent I didn't play I watched I wanted to watch you know but uh, it was kind of a crazy culture and so there was this uh, the way that the school on Fridays and Saturdays would try and keep control of it is they had this army of security guards called crows because it was Crows security company, so we just call them Crows, okay? There's an army of them, and this is a small town, so it's a college town, right? So you don't have a lot of people to pull uh, pull from. So the Crow security guards were the lowest form of security guard. I mean, they were, no one was going to catch anyone if they were to, no one would even bother trying to catch anyone on that security guard detail, Right? Um, you see them, and it's kind of, you shrug your shoulders. It's like below an RA, okay? Um, we didn't obey them. We didn't fear them. We didn't care about them. Uh, the next step up was campus police, Clemson campus police. A little bit bigger of a deal. Um, you kind of pay a little bit more attention. Then the next step up was, was the Clemson City Police. And, um, you know, they, when they came around, somebody was getting in trouble. And you, you had to pay attention because literally you'd spend a night in jail or something like that if, if there, anything didn't go exactly the way it was supposed to go. And so you fear them a bit and you obey them. Um, then I had some fraternity brothers that got in real trouble. Um, so for about six months, there was FBI around this apartment complex of these guys in my fraternity. That was scary. Um, a lot of fear and a lot of obedience going on. Okay. Do you guys see the progression? 
God is very zealous for us to understand he's big, that he's serious, that we have to respect him, that he's not a cupcake. And as we do, that leads to a healthy fear. We take it serious. We have regard for him. We we understand it. We don't miss it. There's a, a gravity there. There's gravitas. And because of that, we then choose to obey and say, um, it's wise to follow what this guy says. It's wise to obey. It's wise to do. And the thing he wants me to do is to love him. And so we love God, which there's a whole other thing, and, and we can chase this a different time. Love is not a feeling. Love is much more a choice, a commitment, a value that we place, regardless of feeling. Um, it's a whole different thing. But so here's the progression, okay? So when we get further along, we get to the eye of the hurricane here. And the closer we are to God, the more we're going to experience the love and the blessings of God. Experience the love and the blessings of God. It's one thing to look at an FBI agent standing over here and feel like, wow, that's scary. That guy's serious stuff. It's another thing to be over here the best friend of an FBI agent. Feeling safe in a dark alley. Feeling like you can get into places that you otherwise couldn't get into. Feeling like there's this umbrella of protection. Does that make sense? Now looking at God and saying that's a scary dude is one thing. But to be obeying God and to love God, to be pleasing God and to be standing with God, all of a sudden this is a place where now there's this sense of blessing and God taking care of you. All of those Deuteronomy passages came back to this, didn't they? That as you fear me, as you obey me, as you love me and don't forget me because it's a choice, it's a commitment, don't forget me. As this happens, I will bless and take care of you so that it may go well with you, so that you will have peace, you'll be able to enjoy this thing that I'm bringing to you, giving to you. So as we stand there, it's one look. As we get closer, it's this other look. So there's two things going on here. In Proverbs 1-7, the fear of, of the Lord is the beginning of what? You will know. It's the beginning of knowledge. As you fear God. Why is it the beginning of knowledge? Because you will know to obey and to, to, to follow, to submit. It's the beginning of knowledge. You'll know what to do in your life. This is the book of Proverbs. It's about uh, flourishing, the good life. It's about wisdom. You will know how to live by understanding where God exists in your universe. You start by putting the sun in its proper place. And then you begin to look at everything else. And so the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of wisdom. We begin here as the sun is in its place. As God is here, we respect him, take him serious. We're going to know to obey. And as we know to obey and as we understand the character of God, we're going to love 
commit, choose. He will be our praise. We will love God with an undivided heart. Um, Psalm 86, 11. Give me an undivided heart. I don't want half this and half this. Jesus says, you can't, you can't love this and love this. It doesn't work that way. And as we fear God, respect him, and as we obey him, and we come to know him, we're going to love him. What does it say in 1 John? It says, he who loves God, he who loves God knows God. Up here, we're going to not just know wisdom, we're going to know God. We're going to know God because God is love. And if you don't know love, then you don't know God because God is love, you see. And so as we get close to him and we have this relationship with him and we love him, we will know him completely in a way that we can't know him when we're just back that way. And so this idea of to know God is just about love, intention with this, well, but we have to fear God to have knowledge. How do those things really work? They, they go together. They dovetail. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge. Obedience is going to lead us to God with God. And as we love God, we're going to know and experience this. Now, I want to play out this tension just a little bit more because the question really is, again, in 1 John um, perfect love casts out fear. Per- perfect love casts out fear in First John. And God showed his love for us by sending his son that, that his son might die so that we could be saved. And perfect love, this love of God, is something that chases out and casts out fear. How does that exist in tension with, with love? And so I want to give you a couple verses more, just kind of playing out this mystery that we're talking about. Um, let's just put them on the screen. Psalm 33 says this. Psalm 33, 18. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. Psalm 118, 4 says that, this. Let those who fear the Lord say his love endures forever. Um, Psalm 147, 11. The Lord delights in those, let's camp on this one for just a second. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. See, the thing is, is um, to really understand the love of God, you don't have to just understand love. You have to also understand God. My poodle peaches. I wasn't there for the naming. Oh, really. <laughs> if you don't know this, I've, I've, I've got a, a wife. Well, I mean, I'm my wife, Tamara. And I've got four daughters. And then we got a girl dog. And, uh, and so lately, it's just been nonstop football on TV. <laughs> my girls now know a lot about football. Um, I'm surrounded by women. But the dog... P, uh, poodles, pe- peaches, poodle. <laughs> this dog loves me. Um, just all this dog wants to do is just lick me in constantly. 
It's just like a, I mean, I'm not trying to gross you out, but it's like a lickathon. And so, I, and I, I don't like this dog. <laughs> this dog exists for the kids, right? <clears throat> that dog loves me. I don't care. It's not going to affect my decisions. It's not going to affect my choices. It doesn't affect my emotions. Um, It doesn't matter. Love in and of itself doesn't have context. It doesn't matter. You see what I'm saying? It means a lot more that my wife loves me. Um, It means the most that God loves me. The context of who, the, 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 the person, the, the one loving, is what matters, you see. And um, these verses really cash that out. All of Scripture cashes this out. That we're not going to understand the love of God if we don't first understand the magnitude of God. That's why fear precedes um, obedience, which precedes love. Jesus, in my favorite, I, I talked about it last week, but my favorite passage in Scripture revolutionized my life. In John 15, verses 9 through 11, Jesus is saying, Remain in my love. My love is a place, a sphere that you can remain in. Remain in my love like I have remained in my Father's love. Now you do this by what? How do you remain in the love of Jesus? Obeying his commands. You remain in my love. You do this by obeying my commands. How do you obey things? You obey things by the severity, the the regard you have, the authority that something has. We're back to this big thing again. Jesus says, remain in my love. It's a sphere. You do this by obeying my commands. I tell you this so that my my joy may be in you and so that your joy may be complete. I have love for you. I have regard for you. I care about you, says Jesus. I want you to have fullness of life. I want you to have joy. Um... In John 10, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and life to the full. Did you ever want all the life that's possible? I mean, this isn't self-help time of the message. This is truth. Jesus wants the fullness for you. Everything that God can give you, everything that you can become, Jesus wants that fullness of life. That you, you, He came as a shepherd that you may have life and life to the full. And he's saying, now here's how you're going to get this. I want my joy to be in you. I want your joy to be complete. You got to obey my commands. My commands are to love God and love others. And if you do that, you'll remain in my love. And this complexity is everywhere throughout Scripture. And it begins not just with the love of God, but it it begins with the the character of God and the magnitude of God, which makes his love mean something. Okay? If God is just a poodle to you, it doesn't matter about his love. Because it's just, it's anecdotal. It's trivial to you. 
If God is something, however, and, and God is the sun in the universe, and then we start talking about God's love for you, it's going to get your attention. It's going to ground your whole being. It's going to change everything. These verses talk about this. Now, the Lord delights. God gets excited about those who respect him, who have regard for him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. The last verse here says this, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on all those who fear him. Who are God's children? Just the people that were born um, Jewish in the Old Testament? Or just the people who were, no, like all throughout the Old Testament, God was like, man, I've got my people, but I love everybody. And it's going to go from my people, the nation of Israel, to others. And it's going to spread. And all those who call on my name, who fear me, I love them. That's going to be my family. That's why he said to people who thought it was just about ethnicity, he's like, um, not all Israel is true Israel. What does that mean? Not all Israel is true Israel? What he's saying is, my people, it's about a heart thing. Circumcise your hearts. It's those who call on me, who fear me. Those are my people, whether they're born into this kind of an ethnic group or that one. It doesn't matter. So we have this phrase in the New Testament that's amazing. It's called, um, the Greeks who feared God. Or the God-fearing Greeks. What were the God? What does that mean? What, what's that? It's, it's these people outside of the nation of Israel that don't really kind of have the traditions and don't really have the scriptures, yet they, they know of God, they've heard of God, and these, these outsiders, these Greeks, they fear God. God-fearing Greeks. And God in the New Testament goes after those people. Because they're his people. And so we see in the book of Acts, he's even sending and moving around like Peter to go to this household of this Roman centurion guy because he's like, I want to, you to connect with these guys so that I can pull them in because they're mine. God acts like a father and has compassion on those who fear him. His kids are those who fear him. Those who have regard or respect for him, God will, will envelop you in. That's, that's where it's at, you see. What's the other thing going on here? So let's transition here and kind of move along. Um, let's read something. Isaiah 50, if you want to turn there real quick. So we've got this. We've got fear is a big deal because it sets everything up. It says that you understand the magnitude of God, who God is. Um, the, the very identity of God, and God delights in this. And he's going to treat you like a kid, and you are going to care enough to obey because God's bigger than other stuff, and you're going to know God because as you obey him, you're obeying him in, in, with an with a undivided heart in love. Now here's the other side of the coin. I think we've got it on the screen, actually. Isaiah 50, verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord? And obeys the word of his servant. Let him who walks in the dark. You ever felt lost? Like you just couldn't see your way forward into the future? Okay, you're walking in the dark. Let him who walks in the dark. Who has no light. Trust in the name of the Lord. And rely 
on his God. The righteous will walk by what? Faith. Okay, so when it's dark, when you can't see in the future, when you don't know how to go, you don't know where to turn, everything seems bleak, what are you to do? You trust in the name of the Lord and you rely on your God. So this is where you go. Trust. Okay? You're going to fear God more than your future. You're going to fear God more than your problems. You're going to be willing to obey no matter what the cost, no matter how silly it seems or counterintuitive, countercultural, paradoxical, and you will always come back to love. Um, you'll trust your God. You'll bank on God. And this is the second half of it now. But now, all you who light fires... And provide yourselves with flaming torches. Go, walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you have set ablaze. This is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. You are not going to get anything by going your own way, by trusting in yourself or your own devices. There's a choice that we have in life as we're walking forward to in some sense, obey God, slow, it's hard to understand, or we got all these other options available to us. So let me grab one of them. Let me light a torch and let me try and figure this thing out. I'm going to go find myself. And God is like, "Uh uh-uh. So the size of our God affects that. Do you understand what I'm saying? So uh, uh, Tamara and I were watching the movie Eat, Eat, Pray, Love, Eat, Love, Pray, eat. Um, Gal goes to Italy, then uh, somewhere, and then Bali. Oh, India, and then Bali. Um, She eats spaghetti in Italy, and then meditates in India, and finds love in Bali. Eat, eat, love, eat, pray, love. Eat, pray, love. This is, now it's nothing against Julie Roberts. This is the story of my generation. Go find yourself. Go find yourself. You can do it. Believe in yourself enough. Trust in yourself enough. Forgive yourself enough. Love yourself enough. Um, Do what feels right enough and go find yourself. I was talking to a friend and this began to really emerge to me how little we really our obedience is really grounded in the size of God I had a friend that during the first year of this kind of economics collapse was about to file bankruptcy he went to Best Buy I don't know how I I don't know how it works but loaded up on uh, electronics knowing so he had it worked out somehow that it was going to all get washed out in the bankruptcy This guy, literally a year before, if I was teaching an ethics class, is the very guy of all the guys I know that if I had given him a case study, he would have raised his hand and been like, this is ethics and what is right and what is wrong. And a year later, like this is what's going on. And I was just like, wow. Um, I, I do weddings. And I, I have this script I use from a guy that did weddings. I mean, I come up with my own messages, but like the 
the formal part. I got from a guy when I was like in seminary and, and I, it's kind of script. And it has this language that I would, would have never done, but it sounds good. It sounds like wedding language, so I go with it. But it's like we're gathered together here about these high and holy ideals. High and holy ideals. Um, most divorce, a lot of divorce is like, yeah, I just don't feel it anymore. Jesus didn't condemn divorce. I, I mean, the conservative culture can sometimes get this wrong and be like, all divorce is wrong. It's not. Not all divorce is wrong. What Jesus condemned, though, was the flippancy of divorce. Do you understand what I'm saying? The casual nature of it, the, the whimsical nature of it, the, the, the feelings of it, that there's no high and holy ideals that we're really struggling to, to keep because God is above these and we make vows in his name, but the flippancy of it all. And this economy all of a sudden wipes away my friend that I thought had high and holy, and it shows that feelings rather than God are really the determiner of kind of where things go. Do you get where I'm going with this? I counsel people all the time, and it is so hard to get them to just stop for a second and realize there is only one way forward. I can't, can't, I'm not a good, Brandon's a better counselor than I am. I shut people off before they even finish talking. And, you know, it's like the guy on that commercial, like, that throws the Kleenexes at the guy. The drill sergeant therapist. Have you seen that? You know, wanna Kleenex, pansy, you know. I'm not that bad. But but to me it's so clear. There's complexities involved, but but the the start point is so clear. Okay, whatever your problem is, however you're feeling, I know where you start. Um, you put the sun in its place. You put the sun in its place, you start there. You commit right now that no matter what God says to do in that, wherever you're at, no matter what God says to do, that that that's what you're going to do. And if you're not willing to do that, it's like, okay, we don't have time for the rest of this session. Because you're just looking to grab hold of something that's promising, some some bit from self-help TV, some latest thing, something that's packaged really nice that you saw on a movie, you know, some trip to Italy. You know, you're, you're, you're looking for something and then for me to bless that so that you can run off and go looking for yourself as if you've lost yourself. And you're going to find it in Italy. It, it all starts with, um, is God bigger than your problems? See, here's the real issue. People run off trying to fix their own problems because their God is smaller than their problems. When I come home um, stressed out about money and my poodle starts licking my feet, I got no time for that. If my God is bigger than my poodle and I come home stressed out about money, There's only one place I want to be and it's in my bedroom on my knees with my face buried in this chair I got in my bedroom um, because that's the only thing that's bigger than my problems. What problems do you have today? Problems have you had for years? 
if we were to sit down with each other and if we're really good friends or if we're really going to care enough about each other, the first thing we want to say is, look, the first thing here is, guess what? God is bigger than your problems. Trust him. Rely on his name. Do you want to do something really remarkable for your faith? Keep a pen next to your Bible, and as you read the Bible, circle all the times it talks about the name of God, because you're going to begin to realize it's like um, when I got married, it was really annoying. I had this cousin. Um, none of them are in this. They're not your kids, Tammy. Um, I had this cousin that went around and thought it would be fun because he was probably bored. He thought it would be fun to get into every wedding picture. Okay? He shows up everywhere, right? Um, I don't know how this fits, but this, this phrase, the name of God, shows up everywhere. So we just read it in Isaiah. And it says in Isaiah, look, we're going we're gonna to trust in the name of the Lord. Uh, real quick, Psalm 23. What does it say? It says... He guides me in paths of righteousness. He's going to lead me in the best places for his name's sake. Matthew chapter uh, 7, 6. Let's read it real quick. What does Jesus say about the prayer, the prayer, the, the overarching prayer, the Lord, what we call the Lord's Prayer? He says this, Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Your name, the thing that, that encompasses you, the, thing, the, the symbol for you, the hook we use for you, it is holy and it is set apart. Hallowed be your name. Everything else in the prayer follows from that. You look at all the great passages of Scripture and it's going to be like my little cousin. This phrase, the name of the will show up everywhere. You've got to start with an idea that God is bigger than your problems. And then you've got to ask yourself this question. Do I really believe that God is love? Have I really loved him enough, chased him enough to experience that he really is love and has my best interest? And that question is going to determine whether I'm willing to trust him. Or walk by faith. But we start with the size of God and then we move to the goodness of God. We start in Scripture with the size of God and then God calls us into obedience and then love is a response to God's size, His authority asking us to obey and then we walk in love and we chase God. It's a commitment, not a feeling. Uh, Mike is going to come up in just a second here and, and recite a poem for us. And then I'm going to come back and close us in prayer. And then after that, we're going to sing a hymn together. But what, I've tr what I'm trying to do, really, this morning, is just to say, um, your God has to be bigger than the tooth fairy. That we don't have a cocker spaniel God that God is not a cupcake and we're not packaging him like baby Jesus God. And we have to develop this sense of respect and regard for the magnitude, the size, the authority of God and realize that he is commanding us to love, not asking us. Not, 
We're not, we're not supposed to work up the feelings to love or just jump into the middle of the story at love, but we're in a response to a command from somebody in authority, and that is the starting point of our, our discipleship. That will be our righteousness in some sense. Trust, faith that leads to obedience, and then ultimately to love. Let's listen to um, Micah. A friend of mine bragged, I'm working on a new poem. What's it about, I asked. <laughs> he laughed and said, what else? Seeing my dismay, he explained, I'm convinced that every poem and every song and every rhyme from the beginning of time until the apocalypse will be and has been about the same tiny word with gargantuan significance. Love. Now, I'm not saying everyone is praising love, but rather its presence or absence in each artist's life influences every word they write. Even those who compose lyrics lamenting the futility of being only exemplify their need for love. For no one who knows love believes life is devoid of purpose. Then others sing that love ain't worth it. It might have its perks, but most people like to flirt with whatever they wish. So they make music about making love instead of knowing true love. Desiring love's benefits, but not a relationship. Then some sing that love is for the weak and they don't need it. While others tried it, got disappointed by it, only to convince themselves that it's not real. Yet no matter how bitter they feel towards love, it's impossible to ignore love. So they rhyme about love being a waste of time, a myth which only fools believe in, while foolish poets cry, amen, we are fools for love and proud of it, for they believe it is the only thing that gives life meaning. They would rather die for it than live without it. They shout its praises with the same intensity of those who vocalize their hatred. And so this war between loveless poets and those who believe rages through the ages on book pages, stages, radio waves, and screens, inexhaustibly pushing their perspectives on what love is or isn't. But in the end, love doesn't need a defense. It is what it is. Dang, I said, that's quite a view. And if it be true, I conclude something huge. See, according to my theology, 1 John 4, 8 states, God is love. Thus, according to your theory, I suggest that every poem and every song and every rhyme from the beginning of time until the apocalypse will be and has been about God. Now, I'm not saying everyone is praising God, but rather his presence or absence in each artist's life influences every word they write. Even those who compose lyrics lamenting the futility of being only exemplify their need for God. For no one who knows God believes life is devoid of purpose. Others sing that God ain't worth it. He might have his perks, but most people like to flirt with whatever they wish. So they make music about making gods instead of knowing the true God. Desiring God's benefits, but not a relationship. Then some sing that God is for the weak and they don't need him, while others tried him, got disappointed by him, only to convince themselves that he's not real. Yet no matter how bitter they feel towards God, it's impossible to ignore God. So they rhyme about God being a waste of time, a myth which only fools believe in, while foolish poets cry, amen, we are fools for God and proud of it. For they believe he is the only thing that gives life meaning. They would rather die for him than live without him. They shout his praises with the same intensity of those who vocalize their hatred. And so this war between godless poets and those who believe rages through the ages on book pages, stages, radio waves, and screens, inexhaustibly pushing their perspectives on who God is or isn't. But in the end... God doesn't need a defense. He is who he is. Amen. Will you guys stand with me as the band comes up to lead us in a closing hymn? Go ahead and stand.
Father God, I pray that we would know you as you truly are, not as uh, culture makes you out to be. Pray that you would strip us of all the preconceptions, that we would see you high and exalted, that you would become our only praise. Pray that you'd be the center of our universe, Father, that the first step in everything, no matter what the situation or circumstance, would be a response in trust, in faith, in obedience, and in love. In Christ's name.